welcome to the Runners Connect Run to the Top podcast, where it's all about learning from the best minds in the sport so you can train smarter, stay healthy, and run faster now. And now your host, Jeff Gaudet. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Runners Connect podcast. We're really excited to have you join us today, and I hope that everybody is enjoying their spring and the quick warm-up of temperatures. I definitely feel bad for all of those of you in the Midwest who saw snow this week. That's definitely not what you want to see at the beginning of May, but hopefully it just means that you're going to have a warm summer that's uh, great for running. So moving forward, today we have on our show a special guest, Dr. Timothy Noakes. Dr. Noakes is one of the most influential and esteemed exercise scientists in the world. His book, The Lore of Running, is considered by many students of the sport to be the Bible of current training theory. I know I've personally read that book three to four times, and it's quite the long read. Perhaps one of the reasons Dr. Noakes is so renowned is his continued desire to question current training theory, even conclusions he's initially helped define. Rather than resting on his laurels, Dr. Noakes continues to challenge his own beliefs and push his research and understanding of training theory to the next level. Some of the topics that we're going to cover in this interview include redefining your thoughts on dehydration and the danger of hyponatremia, which is uh, overhydration, including what causes this, why it's so prevalent and dangerous, and we help re- and Dr. Noakes helps us redefine hydration guidelines for training and competition. We're also going to talk about Dr. Noakes' changing perspective on carbohydrates and his move to a more high-fat, high-protein diet. Specifically, we discuss the importance of teaching your body how to stop seeking out carbohydrates and how finding your minimum number of carbohydrates can help you improve performance and overall health. Finally, We're going to discuss the role the brain plays in training and racing and how understanding how this process works can help you push through your harder workouts and your races. Dr. Noakes is a true pioneer and authority in the sport, and his passion for research and running are palpable throughout this interview. I hope you learn as much from it as I did. We mentioned a lot of resources on this podcast. Um, If you want to visit any of them, you can visit runnersconnect.net slash rc27. And that'll have uh, all the links to Dr. Noakes' books, um, uh, as well as some additional, more in-depth articles on some of the topics that he covers, including overhydration, brain training, those types of things. And one final request before we get started with this podcast. If you're listening on iTunes, please head over to the iTunes directory and leave us uh, a review and a star rating. Those ratings really help us climb up the charts, and more importantly, help new runners discover our podcast and can potentially help them improve their training and racing. It's really a great help for us, and it'd be greatly appreciated if uh, you could do that either before, during, or after this interview. It would be well appreciated. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get our our interview started with Dr. Timothy Noakes. Hi, Dr. Noakes. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to join us on our podcast. I've given a brief introduction about you, uh, and uh, as as well as some of your books that you've written. Um, Obviously, you have a tremendous background. And we could definitely sit all day and chat about your amazing information, uh, especially in the lore of running. However, I want to focus today on some of your more recent work, including the central governor theory, your findings on hydration, and your most recent research on diet and nutrition. Before we get to that, though, let's talk a little bit about how you got started in running and what sparked your interest in the science of endurance training. Well, thank you, Jeff. I actually started rowing in South Africa in crude i think that's the term you use in the united states yep and it was when i was rowing in my i was about 18 or 19 it was during that time that i i went out one afternoon because it was so windy we couldn't row on the on the lake that day so i decided to run around the lake and after about 40 minutes i had this incredible runner's high of course i didn't know what it was at the time <laughs> and i just got such an amazing feeling i just knew that i had to become a runner and so I rode for the next four years, and while I was getting towards the end of my rowing career, I started running more and more and ran a few races. They were quite short races, probably four or five miles, but nothing long further than that. And I finished r- rowing in July 1972, and then I ran a marathon in about September 72, and then I ran the 56-mile kilom- Comrades Marathon the next year, and that really hooked me because that was just an, a wonderful race. I just had a fantastic race that day. And, and then I realized that my mind was in some way just absolutely right for running. Mm-hmm. 
and I'd finally found the sport that I'd been looking for for about 23 years. So that's how I got into it. The, the question of where the science came, well, I was studying medicine at the time, and it was really interesting because my medical training, all I wanted to know was sports medicine. I didn't want to know clinical medicine as it's conventionally taught. All I wanted to know was how is the science and the medicine I'm learning, how can I apply it to sport and particularly to the physiology of running uh-huh. and endurance sports. So that's, that's how it started. I, I, it was kind of in my head that I was, I was always going to be a scientist, not a clinical doctor. And I, I, just, I think I just used my training to, to ampl- amplify that. Mm-hmm. So did you start, when you started, first started training, did you experiment on yourself a lot in terms of exercise physiology? Yes, I was studying physiology at the time. In fact, in my second year of medicine that we were doing physiology, and there was a rudimentary exercise laboratory, and I certainly got interested there. And in fact, I think the next year, we tested some of the runners who were going to run this 56-mile race. And I think we tested 10 of the runners to see if we could predict their performance. And of course, we measured the traditional VO2 max. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it was very effective in predicting their performance, as I recall. But that was the definitely the first study that I ever did. <laughs> and it was about the same time, which of course relates to everything we're going to talk about, was that when I started running in South Africa, we were restricted in how much fluid we could get during the races. And so when we ran marathons, I think we used to get one drink at about 20 miles, and that was about it. Wow. And I started, <laughs> I started complaining and saying, no, we should be able to drink more frequently. And at the time, the guidelines were that you could drink at 10 miles. And then I think every five, three miles thereafter, I think that was the rules. But in South Africa, they hadn't reached here yet. And so for the first five or six years, I wrote extensively about how much you must drink during exercise, culminating in an article in May 1981 when I said you should drink as much as you possibly can. <laughs> That's the most important thing in the run is that you should be drinking all the fluid you could find. And as we'll discuss, it was a month later that I described the first case of fluid overload in a marathon. And then from that moment, I was never again certain of my personal opinion because I was so wrong in my <laughs> <May> 1981. <laughs> Interesting. So this, we were definitely going to cover this second, but since you brought it up, we'll go ahead and, and look at it first. Um, let's talk more about the, the, the hydration. And, you know, you, you outlined how you first thought of hydration and how much runners should drink, and then, uh, you know, then looked at how much, or what the research was actually showing you. Uh, how much has that evolved? How did that evolve over the next, I don't know, 20 or 25 years or so since you published your book, Waterlogged? Thank you. That's a great question. Well, it all starts on June the 1st, 1981, and a lady runs the Comrades Marathon. Again, it's this 56-mile race. And, of course, she starts the race in perfect health, and she reaches 70 kilometers, so it's about, about 40 miles. And she doesn't, her husband doesn't, she doesn't recognize her husband, and he decides that that's a good reason to take her out of the race, which was a good decision. He took her to the race finish. And the doctors examined her and said, well, of course, you're dehydrated. So they gave her two liters of intravenous fluids. Uh-huh. And the, the, the husband realized, actually, she was getting worse, not better. So he said, I don't think I trust these doctors. Well, he didn't say that, but he sort of thought that. And he packed her in the car and drove to the nearest hospital, which was actually at, back in Durban, which was at the start of the race. So he had a, at about an hour and a half drive to get back to the, to the start of the race. And on the way... His wife had an epileptic seizure and went unconscious. So he has this lady who is perfectly healthy, and eight hours later, she's dire, in dire straits. So she was admitted, and fa- unfortunately, she was treated by a friend of mine who was a very great physician, very fine physician, and, and he did the right things. He measured her blood sodium concentration, and he found it was very, very low. So she had this condition of hyponatremia, which means a low blood sodium concentration. Mm-hmm. And she, about a month later, she wrote to me and she said, you know, what happened? She'd been told that probably she'd lost too much salt and that was the problem. 
And I, I interrogated her, and I managed to find, I think, one or two other cases in the same race. We'd, we'd never, ever, ever had a report of it before. But so it turns out in this race, there were three people who contacted me who all had the same symptoms. And I interrogated them very, very thoroughly. And it was clear to me that they probably drank too much. Mm-hmm. And, and over time, I was then able to make calculations of how much sodium they'd have to lose to develop the hyponatremia. Or how much fluid would they have to overdrink, or what was a combination? And one, there were one or two keys because one of the ladies, not running in that race, but in running in an, an Ironman triathlon, she told me she'd put on five kilograms during the race. Now I knew she had anorexia, and I knew that she wouldn't, she would be very, very concerned about her weight. So that's something she would know about. Mm-hmm. And another of the athletes passed about six liters of extra fluid during his recovery. And so on the basis of that evidence and the, the story and uh, the calculations, we wrote a paper in 1985 and said this is water intoxication and that runners should be warned not to overdrink during exercise and they shouldn't overdrink sports drinks, etc. Uh-huh. So we published that paper and by, 19, by 1987, it was very clear that there was a real problem of hyponatremia in the Comrades Marathon, so much so that I was woken up at midnight in 1987. I live in Cape Town, which is about a 1,000 miles from, from the race, and I wasn't at the race that year. And the doctor phoned me at midnight. She said, Doc, I've got 18 people with hyponatremia, and they're all very sick, uh, come from the Comrades Marathon. What do I do with them? And all I knew was that you just don't give them fluid. So that was the advice we gave her. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, they all survived. So I decided that to send one of my PhD students up the next year. And he then went to the hospital. And everyone who came in who was really sick, he treated them and measured their sodium and water balance during the, the 24, 48 hours that they took to recover. And we clearly showed that it was too, purely due to fluid overload and that sodium deficit had absolutely nothing to do with the condition. And we had a bit of trouble getting that paper published, but we published it in one of the leading American journals, the Journal of Applied Physiology, in 1991. Mm-hmm. So as far as I was concerned, we'd solved the problem. We knew it's overdrinking. It's mm-hmm. problem solved. But unfortunately, that wasn't the case because the epidemic of hyponatremia was only just beginning. And the reason was, and it's described in Waterlog, was the sports drink industry came along at that time and they were promoting drinking a lot of fluids. And it's my opinion that it was the over-promotion of the importance of drinking during exercise that encouraged people to drink too much. And, and runners weren't warned that if you over-drink and you run slowly, you may retain the water and some of you may become waterlogged and develop this condition. So that, in my view, was, was, was how the whole story developed. Yeah, that makes sense, and it's, and it's a fascinating timeline. Um, to, to dig in a little bit, um, I, have, I have two follow-up questions to that. Um, you mentioned that your, your PhD student was able to recognize, and you, and you published in 1991, that the, the, that the sodium concentrations weren't the problem, or they weren't, uh, or weren't the, the cause of the issue. Um, what did you? What specifically, I guess, scientifically happens when um, when somebody becomes overhydrated and, and has hyponatremia? What happens is that it, you, you can overdrink, and most people will fortunately excrete the excess, so they'll urinate a lot. And I think what happens is that most people who overdrink after a two or three hours, they pass so much urine, they realize, my gosh, I really don't need to drink this amount. I'm, I'm passing too much urine, let me cut back, and they're fine. The problem in people who develop hyponatremia is that they over-secrete the hormone antidiuretic hormone, which was, is an incredibly powerful hormone, and it completely stops all urine production. So this is the contrast. These people are drinking a lot, and they're usually drinking about 50 liters per hour, 50, sorry, 50 ounces per, per hour. Mm-hmm. I have to get the American units uh, right because that's okay i think that works for us ounces works for for americans typically good so it's it's about 1.2 liters or or 40 ounces which is which is a typical number that these people drink so they drink it and they don't pass urine because they're secreting antidiuretic hormone and so they retain the water and they're not aware of it 
And the first thing they may notice is that their running becomes impaired. And that's an early sign. They actually can't run very well. The second sign is that they might notice that the intestine is full of fluids and they might find the, the sloshing feeling. Mm -hmm. Then they may notice that their mental capacity changes and they become slightly disorientated. Once you become disorientated, what's happened is the brain has now started to swell seriously. And as it swells more progressively, eventually you lose consciousness. You usually have epileptic seizures. And it's at that stage that what happens next is critical. Because to save their lives, you must give them a very highly concentrated sodium infusions. And we, that's a 3 to 5% solution. And if you give them that at a relatively low flow rates, they will start to pass masses of amounts of urine and, and dehydrate the brain, essentially, which is what you're trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if you give them a dilute sodium solution, because they're secreting this hormone, antidiuretic hormone, the kidneys, all they do is they retain all the water and excrete the sodium. So when we test these patients, we find that they have a lot of sodium in their urine, although the blood sodium is very low, and that's the paradox which tells us that tells us these people are secreting too much antidiuretic hormone. And what they don't need is fluids. What they do need is very highly concentrated sodium uh, infusions to get them better. That, that's good to know, and, and hopefully uh, people listening to this podcast, um, if, it ever, if they're ever in that situation, whether it be themselves or fellow runners, family members, um, they're able to, to act on that information and hopefully um, the doctors are able to act on that information as well. So I appreciate you going into those details. Um, Thank you very much because I, it, I received an email this very week from the Grand Canyon, from doctors working at the Grand Canyon, and they said there's still a major problem in hyponatremia. It's the single most important problem that they face in the Grand Canyon. Mm -hmm. And they're doing the right thing. They know how to treat the patients. But what the patients still don't understand is that they're over-drinking because they obviously it's extremely hot in the Grand Canyon and they're out there for a couple of hours, many hours, in fact, working quite hard and they think they must drink lots of fluids. And the answer is that that's not the right thing to do. And they tend to over-drink and then the condition. And if you lose consciousness at the bottom of the Grand Canyon, I suspect it will be very difficult to get you out of there. <laughs> yes, that, definitely not a good place to be, that's for sure. <laughs> um, in, in regards to the antidiuretic hormone, is there a, a, a fluid number or an ounces per hour number that, that typically triggers the, the over-secretion of that hormone? That's a really interesting question because it's clear it doesn't happen in everyone and it's something during exercise that the hormone is secreted. You see, because the antidiuretic hormone is there to be secreted when you are dehydrated, not when you're overhydrated. So it's completely inappropriate. And so normally the ADH secretion responds to fluid balance measures in the body but clearly in these people, there's something else that's overriding that. And it might be nausea, it might be anxiety, it might be muscle breakdown, it might be a general inflammatory response in the body. We really have no idea. But the point, of course, is it's got absolutely nothing to do with their fluid intake. I think you also asked, you know, how much can people drink to prevent the condition or how, what, when does it become dangerous? Mm -hmm. Well, the studies we did all right in the 1980s showed that most runners drink between about 250 and 500 milliliters per hour. Occasionally, you might get a guy drinking 800 ml per hour, but that's very uncommon. So we came up with the guidelines that people should drink to thirst, but you should never, ever, ever drink more than 800 milliliters per hour, and you seldom need to drink more than 500 milliliters per hour. So 500 milliliters per hour is probably about 20 ounces. So 20 or 25 ounces is really the maximum you should be drinking during exercise. And the more you drink above that, the greater the risk that you'll develop hyponatremia. That's a, that's a very good guideline, um, and I appreciate you giving us specific numbers. Um, that, that's definitely helpful for people to, to at least get an idea of where they should be or where they, the numbers that they shouldn't go over. That's very helpful. Good, good. Um, so I, I'd like to talk a little bit about the, uh, you know, what the fear of dehydration, because I think obviously that's what's happening is that 
people are in such fear of dehydration that they, they overhydrate. Um, how do you balance, um, I guess, that, that fear of dehydration with the, the ever-present fear of, of overhydrating? How do you, uh, I guess, how do you, when you advise people, what's, what's your uh, expertise say? Great. The, the reality is that, that dehydration is not a medical condition. All it is is simply a reduction in your total body water. And when your body water content starts to fall, the first thing that happens is you become thirsty. And as long as you drink and so that you slake your thirst, problem solved. And that's the reality. So, in fact, if you're not thirsty you're not dehydrated and anything that is wrong with you at that time has certainly got nothing to do with dehydration. So all runners have to know is as long as they are not thirsty, they're not dehydrated and if they have a medical problem or other problem, it's completely unrelated to their fluid replacement uh, practices. The problem was that commercial interests drove the idea that dehydration is a killer. Uh-huh. And, and it absolutely isn't. Humans evolved in the, 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 the not the deserts, but in the, the arid savannas of Africa as hunters. And, and we learned to run in the heat. And we are the best heat running animals in creation. And if we couldn't do that, we wouldn't be able to have caught the animals that gave us the food that we needed to become big and and have a big brain. Uh-huh. And so we have got this incredible capacity to run in the heat. And so it's completely wrong to say that humans are not designed for running in the heat. We absolutely are. And I think the other problem I have with, with what's happened in the last 20 years, as the running boom has grown, people try to make out that humans are failures, that, that we all we do when we run is something dreadful is going to happen. <laughs> but that's absolutely not the case. We are incredibly good runners. And that's why we're able to run in the, these hot conditions. For example, uh, we studied Haile Gabriel Selassie when he set the world record in the marathon. And, mm-hmm. and he lost 5 kilograms of body weight or 10% of his, his total body weight. And he, you couldn't have told that. He ran as well at the finish as he had at the start. Mm-hmm. Now, according to theory promoted by certain scientists, if he lost more than 2% of his body weight, he couldn't run anymore or he was at risk of heat stroke or something and he certainly couldn't run strongly. Well, it's, it's completely wrong because it probably helps him to lose 5 kilograms because he's a lot lighter. Mm-hmm. And I've spoken to many great athletes, and we've monitored lots of triathletes, Ironman triathletes, and it's without exception that the best athletes always finish the most dehydrated in the race. And that, to me, seems that they're very good at coping with dehydration. Mm -hmm. And so we shouldn't shouldn't fear dehydration. You don't have to fear it. You must fear thirst. If you get thirsty, (laughs) then that's what you have to be worried about. Okay. Um, so uh, I guess the follow-up question there is, you know, you talked about running in the heat. Uh, one of the uh, reasons for drinking fluids is to actually try to cool off the body, or at least that's kind of the uh, prevailing theory. Um, does that still hold true? Is, is it still okay to, to use fluids to try to cool the body? Um, or is that something that um, the body is, is misplaced science? That, again, is part of the old industrial or commercially driven argument. In fact, the most important determinant of your body temperature during exercise is how fast you run. So the faster you run, the higher your body temperature. It is true that fluids make a small difference. So if you get really dehydrated, for example, highly Gabriel Selassie loses 10% of his body weight, I would guess his temperature is probably one degree higher, one degree centigrade higher at the finish than if he had drunk to excess. But the reality is if he tried to prevent all that weight loss, he would have run slower because he's carrying extra weight and it probably wasn't appropriate for him to drink that much. Mm -hmm. So the answer is that if you want to prevent heat stroke, you have to run slower. Now, fortunately, we have a clever brain and that's what is the brain's there to make sure we choose the perfect pace. 
And what I think it does is it warns you, if you're getting thirsty, that you're not doing it right. And the brain's basically telling you, when you get thirsty, listen, either you stop and drink or I will stop you running. And eventually you get so thirsty that you become paralyzed, which is really interesting because when people get lost in the desert and really do die of dehydration, they first become paralyzed so that even though they're not dead and their kidneys are still working and their heart's working, they can't move. And that's because the brain is saying, no, you are not going to move and you're not going to waste fluids by sweating. And in a sense, that's what happens in running as well. If you choose not to drink and you become very thirsty, what the brain will do will simply slow you down until you decide to drink. And then it will release this, this controller, the brake, mm-hmm. and you'll be able to speed up again. We've done studies where we've actually told runners that they're not going to get fed during, or they're not going to get any fluids during a time trial. And they run or cycle slower right from the start. So the brain is so clever, it says, fine, if I'm not going to get any fluids during this event, I'm not going to run as hard as I, I could if you gave me fluids. And this is all done at the, it's all done at a subconscious level. So we, what we've done is we've had this sort of brainless physiology and have forgotten that the, the very reason why humans are here is because we've got this brain that will look after us. We are successful animals. And we came through a very, very torrid evolution where we could have been wiped out at any stage. Mm -hmm. But the thing that saved us was our ability to run in the heat and not to die from either dehydration or heat stroke. That's 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 an amazing point. Um, And and I and I we definitely are going to cover that brain aspect because I think there's a lot more to it. And and as you know, Um, but I want to ask one follow up question about the hydration before we move on. Um, One of the recommendations generally is using fluid as a way to get in to to in to ingest carbohydrates um do you feel that that's still something that's okay to do like for example runners will take a a sports drink solution so to also get in the calories and the carbohydrate um is that still an effective method or should runners be avoiding that and instead trying to look for other ways to get in carbohydrate during the run sorry i I couldn't follow that that's okay Um, i'll ask again um is it, is it a question on the list Yeah, it, it is not. It's a follow-up question. Okay. Maybe try it again. It might come through this time. No problem. So uh, we, one, of the ways, one of the ways that we that runners now try to get in carbohydrate during the run is to ingest a sports drink fluid with carbohydrates and calories in it. Given you know, the dangers of hyponatremia, uh, should runners still be looking at sports drinks as a calorie, uh, as a way to get in calories during a marathon, ultra marathon, or should they start looking at other ways to to ingest those carbohydrates? The I was one of the first people in the modern era to say not only must you drink lots of fluid, but you must ingest lots of carbohydrate. And in fact, we were the first to develop a, a goo-like substance in South Africa in 1983-84, I think it was, mm-hmm. and we introduced it. So I'm completely responsible and accountable for these, this idea that you must take lots of carbohydrate when you're exercising. What I'm realizing now is that for many runners, taking carbohydrate is beneficial but there are many for whom it's actually detrimental, and it really all depends on whether you can metabolize carbohydrate or not. And this is the other component that we've not been told about. And I had to learn at the age of 61 that my body is diabetic and it doesn't like carbohydrates. It doesn't know how to, to metabolize them properly. And I suspect I've had this, this condition for 30 years or so, and probably ingesting a lot of carbohydrate over those 30 years wasn't a good idea because it might have pushed me into type 2 diabetes. Mm-hmm. So, so the reality is that, that humans are really designed to run slowly for long distances burning fats. That's what we're really designed to do. Mm-hmm. And when you are running slowly enough, there's no question, you can do all any type of exercise just burning fat and you really don't need to replace the fats or you don't have to replace the energy because we've got so much fat in our body, however lean we are. Uh-huh. The, the key, however, is you've got to adapt your body to burn that fat, and particularly your brain, because 
if you're always eating carbohydrates, your brain is partially addicted to look for the carbohydrates. So every three or four hours, you will be looking for carbohydrates, both during your normal working day, but also during a race. And so we started promoting the idea that for those people who are slightly overweight and who would like to lose some weight, they actually do better by cutting back on their carbohydrates and trying to run more on fats. And we've had some incredible results. So I think that because so many runners are actually overweight, and that's something people forget. We, we look at the great runners at the front of the race, but we ignore the runners who are running the marathons in four or five hours. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what it's like in the United States, but in South Africa, there's some very big runners at the back there. And in fact, they are being kept fat because we're telling them to eat carbohydrates, whereas if they would simply reduce their carbohydrates and eat more protein and fat, they'd get a lot leaner and they would run faster without doing any more training. So, so we've got this interesting paradox that we've, we've over-promoted carbohydrates I think for the best athletes, they burn carbohydrates incredibly well and they probably have a slight advantage because they can burn carbohydrates so well. Mm -hmm. and, and then we go and do all our clinical studies in the laboratories on these healthy people who can burn carbohydrates and we give them lots of carbohydrates and they perform a little bit better. So we say, well, then everyone must take carbohydrate. But what no one does or very few people outside of Jeff Volek and, and his colleagues in the United States very few people have done the opposite and taken the, the fatter runners at the end of the, the at the back of the race and said, okay, let's get you to lose weight by putting on a high fat diet, low carbohydrate diet, and then let's see how you perform uh -huh. on either a carbohydrate or a, a high fat diet and, and ingesting carbohydrate or ingesting fat protein during exercise. And I just know from the experience I've had in the last two years that that if you're overweight just get rid of the carbohydrates because it's going to make your life a whole lot better and you're going to become a whole lot better runner without even trying. You don't have to do more training. It's just get your metabol metabolism right. Mm -hmm. So to summarize, we are different. And I, I see how lean you are from your picture. And you probably can get <laughs> lots of carbohydrates. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <But> I can. <laughs> if, you, if you were carrying 20 kilograms extra, you wouldn't do well on carbohydrates, but you might do extremely well on fat. And, and that's what I found. I changed, I changed to a high-fat, high-protein diet, and it's made a world of difference to me. And I can't even tell you the, the athletes I've helped. I helped one person, and this is unbelievable because he was a reasonably good runner, but in one year, he dropped his time in a 56-kilometer, 35-mile race by three hours. Wow. From seven hours to four hours. And then he's just become a different athlete. Mm -hmm. And, it's, you know, there obviously there are other extraneous factors as well. But, but he, if he'd continued to eat the high-carbohydrate diet that he'd been told to eat, he would be running seven hours and he be, just wouldn't be running. Mm -hmm. But by, by getting and, – and the other point was that his performance over short distances also improved dramatically. So the idea that you can't run fast over short distances on a high-fat diet is not true. It's being disproved all the time. Interesting. Um, let's actually, this was definitely going to be third, but let's dig into it now since uh, it's, it's definitely very interesting. Um, do, you, do you consider this high-fat, uh, low-carbohydrate diet to be uh, like a paleo diet? Was, was that how you would classify it, or is it something different? I think there are many different names for the diets, and, and the key, what makes them successful is that they're low-carbohydrate. I'm not convinced. The, for example, the paleo diet says you shouldn't eat dairy produce and so on, mm -hmm. and, and I have lots of dairy produce. So then I, they would say, well, that's the low-carbohydrate, high-fat diet from the, that the Swedes promoted. I think it's all in the detail. You have to eat what, you, what you're designed to eat, and, and absolutely there are some people who shouldn't be eating dairy and they need to get their fat and protein from somewhere else. Mm -hmm. In my case, my diabetes makes it very difficult to eat lots of protein, so I've got to eat lots of fat okay. and, and little carbohydrate. But the key driver of success is how, how you reduce your carbohydrate intake. And what I've noticed, and in fact, the guy who, who dropped his time by three hours in the 56-mile race, he wrote to me last night because I wanted to ask some questions because I know he's been lecturing in South Africa and I wanted to know what was the response. Mm -hmm. And he said it's been really, very interesting because he's getting a general feeling 
that South Africans are now turning away from carbohydrate loading and the pasta parties. But he also said that it's interesting that when he talks to fatter runners who were like him, like he was a year ago, and he's convinced that the ones who won't lose the weight are the ones who are addicted to the carbohydrates, that, that carbohydrates are profoundly addictive. Mm-hmm. And if you have to make a choice, you either continue to eat these highly addictive foods and be fat and run poorly, or you change your eating behaviors completely and you avoid the, the addictive foods. And you have a much more bland diet, which is, which is very tasty, but it's perhaps bland and it's got relatively few choices. But your running performance is dramatically changed and you feel much better. Mm-hmm. No, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Um, just a, a couple follow-up questions. Um, and, and especially in regards to the carbohydrate intake, uh, do you think there's a difference between what we consider low glycemic index and high glycemic index carbohydrates? Um, you know, obviously you need to, to eat some carbohydrates. Um, or do you promote or, or see an advantage to eating mostly uh, low glycemic index carbohydrates, like uh, sweet potatoes, those types of things? That's a really interesting question again, because in my view, it's the only carbohydrates that are really low GI are the vegetables, the leafy vegetables. People are very confused. In my view, once the GI index goes above about 40, that's a high GI food, because okay. if you actually monitor what happens to glucose and insulin under those states, and if you're diabetic like myself, our, our glucose goes shooting up. And, and we do secrete insulin, but in a delayed way. So the, 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 the more carbohydrate intolerant you are, the, the, on, the only carbohydrates you can really eat without upsetting your glucose balance are the very, very low GI foods. Okay. For example, you know, we're told that bread is a low GI and this whole grain bread is absolute nonsense. So, Bread has got a very, very high GI, and potatoes and bananas, all the things I used to love to eat, mm-hmm. are very high GI foods, and they're absolutely not what one wants. So just to summarize, the key in your nutrition, and particularly in weight control and getting your metabolism right, is you have to find out how many grams of carbohydrate you can eat a day. That's the key. And it doesn't matter if they're high GI or low GI, you've got to find the number. And for me, it's between 25 and 50 grams of carbohydrate a day. That's when I perform optimally and my diabetes is best controlled between those values. And in fact, if I can get it below 25, it's even better. But I'll give you another example. Recently, a a world-class triathlete wrote to me and he said that he'd read what I'd said and what others had said, and he'd cut his carbohydrates right to about 50 grams. And he found it very difficult to train. And mm-hmm. it was a disaster. He then increased it to 120 grams. So it's only, he doubled his carbohydrate intake. It's 120 grams. But he probably came from 500 or 600 grams a day down to 120 grams. He said at 120 grams, he's hit the sweet spot. He's performing much better than he ever did at 500 or 600 grams of carbohydrate a day. And that's the key. For him, 50 grams is far too low and it's a disaster and he won't perform properly. But similarly, 500 grams is too high for him. Mm-hmm. And, and when he got it right, and I was actually amazed that that little difference between 50 and 120 grams a day could make such a difference. And it's difficult to explain it biologically why you should have this, this very narrow margin of carbohydrates that you can eat each day. So my advice, advice now to runners is you must find the minimum amount of carbohydrate you need, not the maximum. And the answer is very simple because the more carbohydrates you have, the less nutrients you're actually getting in your diet because carbohydrates are relatively nutrient poor and it's the fats and the protein containing foods that are nutrient dense. And the more I read and the more I see people and examine them and follow my own experiences, it seems to me that the, the more of the real foods that we eat and less processed foods, our nutrition goes up dramatically and we become much less prone to infections and other intercurrent illnesses. And if and, and contrast that, if you have a high-carbohydrate diet, I think that's an inflammatory diet and it's not an anti-infection diet. And that would explain why 
why some athletes who are eating lots of carbohydrates get sick at the wrong times and because they, they, their immune function is run down, not because of the exercise, but because of the poor diet. Hmm. Interesting. And it, I mean, that's definitely helpful. And it, and it sounds like for most people, it's very, it's, it's very individual to that particular person. And they also need, most runners or, or athletes in general are going to have to experiment to find that optimal number of carbohydrates uh, that they can perform optimally on. Yeah, so I didn't hear that. Was it to do with optimal performance and amount of carbohydrate or something like that? Yep, I was just confirming. I was just confirming what you said. And okay, that's perfect. Yep. perfect. Um, and just one follow-up question to that as well. Um, obviously, uh, for post-run recovery or post-exercise recovery, uh, ingestion of carbohydrate is supposed to be extremely important to refueling and repairing the muscles. Do you find this still to be true, or is there some other method that runners should, should try to work with, or, or is there some other science behind that? I think the science of nutrition is so driven by the industries that promote carbohydrates that we, we've got an unbalanced situation mm -hmm. where it's much more likely that people will study the effects originally of carbohydrates in recovery. So the, the problem of all research, it's so model dependent, and, and we've had this model that carbohydrates are good and fats are bad, that that's what the science has done, and I'm, I'm equally accountable for that. I'm responsible as much as anyone else, so this is not a criticism, it's just a general statement. Mm -hmm. And industry is promoting carbohydrates because they're cheap and, you can, and they, they don't go off and, and so on. They have got so many advantages. You can make huge profits on carbohydrates. So what I'm trying to say is that the science has been biased towards carbohydrates. And I think there's a big place for not promoting excessive carbohydrate consumption, even in recovery. Mm -hmm. And so again, we've got down to this old idea that there's one factor that determines your performance, and that's the glycogen or carbohydrate in your muscles. Right. And that you've got to stuff the muscles with glycogen as soon as you possibly can in order to perform again. And I think that is just so simplistic. Because what about all the other things that you need to recover after a, after a race, for example? Mm -hmm. You've got to rebuild the protein in the muscles. You may need fat for, I don't know, for your brain chemicals. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm just making that statement. And to focus on one single uh, nutrient seems wrong to me. Mm -hmm. What I'm not hearing, the information I'm getting from guys who go out of the high-fat diet is that they recover much more quickly from exercise and Jeff Volek, my friend in America, is looking at the inflammatory response so that when you do run it, for example, a marathon or ultramarathon, there is an inflammatory response. And he's asking the question, is it made worse by carbohydrates? And maybe it's inhibited to some extent by protein and fat intake. And I think that's the way we need to go. So to summarize the point here is that we have focused in on muscle glycogen as a single determinant of performance, and it's not. Mm -hmm. you, you've got to have strong muscles. You've got to have a brain that's recovered. You've got to have many things that recovery. And again, I come back to the point that if you're eating pasta and rice and potatoes and bread, those are nutrient-poor foods. And if you're taking sugary sports drinks, that's even more nutriently poor. What we need is nutrients and particularly vitamins. Mm -hmm. And I think that we're going to see in the next uh, five years or so much more emphasis on getting in the right nutrients. And that's the, all the nutrients. You know, I, I, for example, vitamin D is coming to the fore as a major vitamin deficiency in, in, in people of my age or 50 or 60. And I, I didn't know about this 20 years ago. But it's very clear that vitamin D deficiency is a real issue. And it's partly because we're not eating enough fat in the diet. It may be because we're not getting enough sun, but there may be other factors as well. But if, if vitamin D, which has been around and known for 50 years, or sorry, probably more like 100 years, we're suddenly realizing it's got huge, huge importance. And then we've got the, the vitamins K2 and vitamin K3, which are coming through. Their interest, there's a lot of interest in them as well. And so I just really think that We've got to move away from thinking that recovery is all about carbohydrates and glycogen. It's not. Mm -hmm. It's much more complex than that. 
No, I think that, I think that's a, a great point, and um, uh, and I think you're definitely onto something. And what I appreciate most, and and is it, this is a compliment, is that you're willing to challenge your assumptions uh, about everything that you've said and that you've written, um, and to to look at everything independently. Um, and as somebody who is uh, loves reading about the the latest research and science of the sport, um, I appreciate that from you. And and um, I, anyway, that I just wanted to say thank you for looking at this kind of stuff. I it's it's appreciated. Well, thank you very much, Jeff. I appreciate it because because not every time <laughs> when I speak in South Africa, is everyone clamoring to say thank you for what you're doing. <laughs> but the rea the reality is uh, is and I mean I learned this from I was fortunate to be in America in, the, in 1967 68. And there, that's where I learned about vibrancy and change, which, which when you live in the colonies like South Africa, <laughs> the British colonies, you know, change in those days wasn't happening. And it was, uh, that really opened my mind. And you, one has to remember as a scientist that, that five years ago, we didn't know stuff which we take for granted now. Mm -hmm. So why should we assume anything we know is true? We, we must be always looking out for how it's going to change. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, if you have time, I'd love to, to delve into the central governor model, uh, if, you, if you have some more time. Of course, play, absolutely. Okay. Um, so I've, I've just basically named it the central gover governor theory. Um, can you explain a little bit about what, uh, what, it, what the central governor theory is um, and how does it pertain to runners, just so we can give our audience a background into what we're talking about here? Excellent. Well, when we started our research, we had very rudimentary equipment. And I fortunately was never trained in the exercise sciences. So I, I didn't know what I was meant to know. I was trained as a doctor and there was no exercise physiology teaching. So when we started testing runners, we, we were looking for this magical phenomenon called the plateau phenomenon, which is meant to sh happen as you're doing a maximum exercise test, the athlete runs faster and faster and faster, as, of course, you know and most of the audience will know. And then they reach the point where, theoretically, they can't take in any more oxygen and they rapidly produce lactic acid and that poisons the muscles and so they have to stop running. And so the key to this model is that you must always see that the runner has run out of oxygen and has developed this plateau phenomenon so that the oxygen fails to rise even though they continue to run faster and faster. And with our rudimentary equipment, we couldn't see this. I, I couldn't see it. We saw it in a few, few athletes, but in the most, it didn't happen. And that made me think that we're actually missing something. And so I gave a talk in 1987 at the American College of Sports Medicine, and, and I said, you know, I don't think it's oxygen that's limiting performance. I, I think it's probably a muscle factor which I don't know what it is, but it's got nothing to do with oxygen. And then in 1996, I was very honored to give the J.B. Wolf lecture at the American College of Sports Medicine annual meeting. And because I'm a generalist, I couldn't speak about any specific topics. So I looked at, at sort of five ideas which I thought were completely wrong in the exercise sciences. And I started on this, the theory that you run out of oxygen during maximum exercise. And at the end, when I written up the paper, I came to the conclusion that the brain must be in control because when we, I work with, with people with heart disease and we exercise them quite vigorously and we've had some of them run marathons uh -huh. but, and they don't, they don't have heart attacks or they don't develop chest pain during exercise. So I said something must be controlling and looking after them as it were. Similarly, many people go to the summit of Everest and of course some die but the majority don't. And similarly, when people run in the heat, a couple will get heat stroke, but the vast majority, millions, don't get heat stroke. So the reality is that something's protecting us. And so I said that there must be an internal regulator, and it must be the brain, and it's maintaining the body so that you don't have a catastrophic failure, because the, in a sense, running out of oxygen would be a catastrophic failure. So I developed this model that, that the body is in homeostasis, everything's tightly controlled and regulated so it's not allowed to get out of out of kilter so to speak and cause a catastrophic response and then I, I call it the central governor as opposed to the muscle factor because at that time it, virtually every exercise physiologist in the world said it's the muscles that limit performance I said no no it's not the periphery it's the center it's it's in the brain and so we came up with the name of the central governor and it simply stated 
All it means is that the brain drives the exercise intensity and regulates it in response to many factors, environmental factors, your motivation, and feedback from the body. And, but the key is that it's designed to get you to the finish safely and not to allow you to run into trouble. Mm-hmm. So that the, the central governors there regulating the performance in a tightly regulated way. And so your performance is determined ultimately by the subconscious regulation in the brain. No, yeah, I mean, uh, that, that definitely uh, makes a lot of sense, I think, when you, when you really think about it, uh, especially as you, uh, one of the, uh, the best ways that I've heard it explained is when you're in the middle of a race and you, can't, you feel like you can't go any faster, but in the final half mile or final 400 meters, you're able to all of a sudden summon this, this amazing kick um, to run faster because the brain knows that uh, it's almost over and that it, it is going you are going to be able to finish without dying. Yes, precisely. That's obviously, as we all know, the call the end spurt. And that, in a sense, is the best evidence that we our physiological models that have passed are really wrong. Because if we asked the athletes at the finish if they were tired, they would say, I'm extremely tired. I'm much more tired at the start. So then you say, well, how could you run the last 400 meters of this 10,000-meter race or 5,000-meter race faster than the first lap or the first few laps? And the answer is that they are tired, but the fatigue is simply a sensation which is there to regulate your performance. So the brain uses fatigue to regulate your performance, not to limit it, but to regulate it. And this conflicts with the other idea that fatigue is in some way related to the state of the muscles. It isn't. It's, only, it's related to how close you are to the finish. Mm-hmm. And so that's allowed us to develop the, the, further develop the central governor model that the brain uses fatigue to make sure you don't override its controls. Because if you, if you weren't fatigued, you would speed up too much at the finish and then you could potentially damage yourself. So you have to have these terrible symptoms of fatigue and pain and discomfort to discourage you from overdoing things. But even if you were to try to override it, you can't do that because the brain is too clever and it makes its calculations too effectively and it's, it's absolutely driven by survival. Survival is all it's interested in. It isn't interested in a peak athletic performance. Mm-hmm. It just wants to get you safety to the finish. Yep. Um, so do you feel like there, there may be some runners that are um, better or, or have, uh, I, I don't, I'm not exactly sure the right way to phrase this, but uh, maybe the best way is uh, that runners are able to overcome their central governor or, uh, or push through their central governor better than others. Uh, meaning that I guess there are some runners that can, quote-unquote, tolerate the pain better than others. Um, do you find that that's something that may be true um, or that you've seen in research? Well, that's obviously a difficult thing to study, but I absolutely agree with you. And However, there's a slight modification of what you said mm-hmm. because you have to remember that your, your brain produces your pain. No one else's brain does. And so you're not overriding it. You're just actually not producing the pain. So, however, I absolutely agree. Athletes like Steve Prefontaine, who was such a great runner in my era, and you know, his records have only just recently been beaten. When you read his story, he will tell you, and the same with Alberto Salazar. Mm-hmm. They, they say that they will outlast anyone. They don't care. They just will outlast them. And in a sense, that's, that's part of the story, that they, they may well feel discomfort, but we don't know if it's any more discomfort than the other athlete. But what they do believe is that they don't care how much discomfort they feel. They're going to run through it and win the race. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, that's the difference. It's, you are absolutely convinced that you are going to win the race. And whatever happens, you're not going to overproduce too much discomfort or if you do, you can ignore it. So it doesn't matter which way it is. <laughs> One has to remember that you're in control and your brain is producing those symptoms. Mm-hmm. So you, you're welcome to produce more discomfort, but then you've got to override it. Or you're welcome to produce less discomfort, which is, of course, a much easier way to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. Um, so I guess the big question with this is, 
how do you think this changes our approach to training um, in any way? Do you think that, that runners should, should train in, in any differently um, to overcome this or race any different to overcome this? Or do you think it's just one of those more this is how things work um, and let's just be aware of it type of um, ideas? I think that the great runners and the great coaches have always known that the brain was in charge. And in fact, some one guy has been writing to me from New Zealand about who trained with Lydiard in the 1960s and 70s. And he said, Arthur Lydiard, all his training was based on developing the, the mental capacity and the toughness. And that's how he saw his training. And I just think that the great coaches, that's what they do. They, they can read each individual and they know exactly what type of training will, will produce the best brain changes or best brain controls in each athlete. So I don't think it changes anything, but what it does do is in the race, it makes a big difference if you know that your brain's generating that discomfort mm -hmm. and you don't have to listen to it. <laughs> that, that makes a big difference because in the past you'd say, oh gee, I'm tired because my, brain, because my muscles are tired and I'm a slow down. Now you can say, no, actually that's not true. I'm running really well. That's why I'm getting so tired. So I should continue and try harder. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no, it's a very good point. <laughs> um, so, uh, Dr. Noakes, thank you so much for, uh, I, those are all the questions that I have. I want to thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to, to chat with us for so long and, and to impart your wisdom. Um, I mentioned two of your books already, uh, Lore of Running and Waterlogged. Um, and you do have a couple other books, I believe, that are out. Um, one is on running injuries, um, and the other one is called Challenging Beliefs. Um, are those the four books that you have uh, currently out? Yes, that's right. And I think the, you know, the three ones I'm really proud of are Challenging Beliefs. That's, uh, that's my autobiography about the science that I've done over the years. Mm -hmm. And again, the focus has always been to, to change ideas by challenging beliefs. And then waterlogged, which I'm really proud because it's, it is changing behaviors and people are realizing that they don't have to drink as much. And they're also realizing you've got to be very cautious about what industry says to you. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, law of running, which, which I'm proud because it, it, it's quite a major work on running. Absolutely. I yes. have another book <laughs> which I'm proud of, but which would not be of much interest to, to American audience. It's called Bob Wilmer's Art and Science of Cricket. And that's a book I wrote with my great friend, the late Bob Wilmer, and it's, uh, it's uh, the law of running for cricket. It, it, it describes his brilliant coaching methods, and I'm very proud of that, but, but that obviously wouldn't be of interest. At the moment, I'm, I'm producing, I'm working on a very short book on nutrition to, to promote the ideas that we've got to be cautious about thinking that we need lots of carbohydrates and that some people may benefit actually from eating more, carb more fat in their diets. Mm -hmm. And is, is there a release date for that book in a, in a title yet, or is it still early? Um, I'm hoping they have it done by the end of the year. It might be earlier than that, but that's kind of what I'm hoping. And then I guess it'll be printed early next year. Okay. And is there a title yet, or are you still, is that still in the works? I, didn't, I couldn't gather oh, that question. Sorry. Is there a title for that book that we should, should, we, that we should watch for? So I think, I think I understood what you said. So, so that's the books that you should be looking for. No, I wanted to, uh, sorry, I wanted to know that if you had a title yet for your new oh, book on nutrition. Uh, yes, indeed, there is a title, but my son doesn't like it. It's, it's, called the, it's called The Thinking Man's Diet. And there's, there's a reason for it because one of the famous books uh, written on diet, there are two famous books written on diet. In 1862, it's 1862, a guy called Banting wrote a book called Letters on Corpulence, and he was the first guy to write about a low-carbohydrate, high-fat diet. And it was an instant bestseller, and it changed medical practice. So right up to 1950, from 1860 to 1950, people knew if you wanted to lose weight, you had to eat low-carbohydrate diets. And, now, and then, of course, Atkins came out in the United States in 1974, but actually in 1967, the very, very popular book called The, Think the Drinking Man's Diet came <laughs> out. And it sold millions of copies, and it was 15 pages long. And it's one of the most, most remarkable books. So, so I'm trying to write a book which is going to be very short and very sweet and to the point. 
because a lot of people say, Dr. Noakes, you, when you write, you write too complex. Can't you make it more simple? We don't, <laughs> we don't need all the facts. Just tell us what to do. <laughs> so if the, think, if, sorry, if the drinking man's diet could give you all the dietary advice you needed in 15 pages, then maybe I can do it in 100 pages. So that's what I'm... That's what, <laughs> well, that's and, certainly a difficult task. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So uh, I encourage everybody to, to definitely check out those books. Um, I've read them and they're phenomenal. Um, we'll throw up uh, links to those books if you want, uh, or the address uh, that you can find any of the resources uh, is runnersconnect.net slash rc27. Um, and again, Dr. Noakes, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, I've learned a lot. Uh, I know the audience is really going to appreciate it. And uh, just thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Jeff. It's been a great privilege to chat to you, and thanks for the wonderful questions and the insights that you add to, to sport. And thank you for what you're doing for runners in the United States. I know that they will appreciate what you've done. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.